Hi everyone, William here. First off, I'd like to thank you for taking time to listen to the NSFW podcast. I've been trying to find interesting things and entertaining topics to talk about with different people from different backgrounds, different industries, things like that. And thanks to some feedback I've been receiving, I think we're going to have a lot of fun over the next few weeks. I'd also like to thank everyone who has subscribed to the podcast through Patreon. With your support, I'll be able to record more often and create more engaging non-podcast-specific content, such as digital art, music, and maybe eventually a video podcast version of these recordings. For those of you who haven't subscribed on Patreon, please check out patreon.com Faraday, and please consider supporting this project. There's some cool monthly rewards I'm working on for everyone who pledges at the $5, $10, and $25 a month levels. And the first batch of these rewards are going to be shipping out sometime in March. You can even follow the Patreon feed and comment on posts without making a monetary pledge. So that's pretty cool. This helps me figure out what the audience wants to hear more about and what's too far out there. If we go a little too out in the weeds or get a little too not safe for work. Again, that's patreon.com slash Faraday to find out more. Thanks for listening and on with the show. This convention in San Francisco for the Sex and Technology, Ars mm-hmm. Electronica. And it was a, uh, went on for several years in San Francisco, uh, uh, run by a guy named Johannes. And it was a very unusual, eclectic group of geeks and super, and, and, and people in the sex industry getting together to talk about the latest advances in teledildonics. Okay. And other ways sex has infiltrated the technology world and how technology has been used to make sex even more interesting. Mm -hmm. And so one particular year they were having a thing related to spaces, in this case the exploration of spaces, games, and politics through sexuality and technology. Okay, and so I did hit the record button already. You did hit the record button. Yeah, hit the record button while you were saying all that. So um, So so we'll stop back and do your introduction. Oh, no, no, no. I will do light trimming for the front end right here. Uh, no big deal. Um, so what Sam is talking about is a book that he has right here called Screw the System. Uh, and when did this come out? Yeah, so this came out in about 2012 okay. or so. 2013. <clears throat> and s- Explorations of space, games, and politics through sexuality and technology. So, okay. So the organization was called Monochrome. Okay. And it was based in Vienna, Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of the Cacophony Society in San Francisco, but they had an Austrian version, which was okay. called Monochrome. And they are basically a bunch of performance artists okay. that kind of push the envelope and do esoteric things with science, art, technology, and weird costumes and just doing wacky stuff. Mm-hmm. So they're basically the counterparts to the San Francisco Cacophony Society where we get to dress up in costumes and do silly things. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, so so it's, uh, yeah, the kindred spirits in another mm-hmm. country. And the ironic thing is they got, they got funding from the Austrian, the Viennese government to do these conventions in San Francisco. Okay. So you had... Uh, uh, Austrian people, European folks, and San Franciscans get together in San Francisco to have very strange conventions. Okay. And it's basically just a bunch of geeks getting together talking about sex and technology in all sorts of weird ways. So, the, the first time I heard you give the talk on uh, sex and space, what was part of, um, it was, 
some weird building off of uh, on Mission Street. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. and w- this was like 2010 mm-hmm. or something like that, 29, 2010. Um, and uh, I think that. Oh no, the babes. Um, and the. Um, I think that that um, that event may have been part of th- these conventions that you're talking about. Yes, it was. Okay. Correct, sir. Okay. So that's why it seems familiar. You to are me. correct, sir. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry, Sam had to uh, to take care of the baby real quick. Um, so, so the result of having sex. <laughs> so, uh, Sam is uh, a former co- coworker of mine who I've known for what? How long have you been back here in the Bay Area, or have have you been in the Bay Area since like two thousand eight, two thousand, or sooner than that, earlier than that? Um, I worked at the Apple Store, San Francisco, from two thousand eight through two thousand thirteen. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. So s- since two thousand eight, you and I have known each other. Um, yeah, you're the one that disappeared and came back. Yeah, yeah. I was like, why the hell did you go to Chicago? I was like, what the fuck? Uh, good career opportunity. And then I started grad school back in San Francisco. So You were lonely. Well, that, that was part of it, too. He was lonely. He missed you guys. And Alexis is sitting here listening to us, too. And, honey, I promise you are more than enough. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so back in 2010, uh, Sam gave a talk uh, as part of one of these conventions uh, about the idea of sex and space and kind of um, the mechanics that would have to go into doing so. And the, the overarching con- convention was talking about um, sex and technology, and there were a couple speakers talk like the, the concept of the Gaia hypothesis, one of the other speakers uh, was talking about, and that's where I found out about that, which I'm a very big fan of that, that concept at this point. I think it's, I think it's a fantastic idea of the human race potentially being part of a larger organism. And like, maybe we are actually the sort of the sperm that are going to move from this ball of rock to the next ball of rock. And therefore, uh, extending life from one planet to another. I think that that's fit. That's fascinating to think about. Well, you have to realize it's a big universe out there. Oh yeah. And there's lots of planets that we're just discovering more and more. Mm-hmm. And it would be foolish to think that there's no other life forms out there. It would be, I, th- I think it would be very arrogant to think. I, I, I don't know if foolish is the right word. I think arrogance might maybe the, the, the better yeah. one. Um, that like just, Simple, um, like if you were to say one out of every one billion stars that are in out in the universe happens to have some form of life or some sort of uh, self-replicating molecular structures, which is kind of what we refer to as life. If one out of every billion stars has this occurring around it on one of the balls of dirt that's out there, then the number of stars in the universe means that there are billions and billions and billions of worlds that potentially have life on them. And that's just easy math. So I think that's something fascinating for us to think about and to keep a very open mind about. And they're probably not going to be like those bad science fiction films where you have the giant alien coming out trying to eat people's heads. It's going to probably not be like that at all. Oh, you mean like the last Star Wars movie? I'm just kidding. Um, most science fiction <laughs> movies in the last 20, 30... Actually, most science fiction movies, period, are like that. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, the closest, I think, is more like Contact. Mm-hmm. Where Contact, where you've got beings that are so vastly older than ours, mm-hmm. they have gone through their wars, they've gone through their ups and downs, through their evolutions, and 
they just watch the other races evolve. And they're just curious to see how it's going and to And see what yeah. happens. And, and they may already be here, and it doesn't matter. And they may have a different time of, of speed, of living mm-hmm. and existing. And so, you know, a lifetime for us could be a second for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, so there's, um, there's another, and this is from uh, an author whose name escapes me. I'll have to look this up. But there's, like, the different levels of civilization. Uh, or different class levels of civilization. We humans on Earth are something like a 0.7 on uh, the Kardiev scale or something like that. I think that's what it's called. Um, and we're like the 0.7. Mm-hmm. And 0.1, well, actually not 0.1, uh, the 1.0 level of, of civilization is if a species is able to harness and utilize all of the energy collected on their home planet which we're able to harness most of the types of energy but we're not able to harness all of it that occurs and really i think that that's maybe a little bit arrogant to think that we're a point seven um and then a point well it, it, excuse me then uh, so a 1.0 is their home planet uh a 2.0 is harnessing all of the energy of their home star uh, which would be something like a Dyson Sphere right? Uh, or Dyson Swarm or something like that. And then a 3.0 is harnessing all the energy of their home galaxy. So you yeah. see how this grows in like magnitude. I believe in the book Con- uh, Cosmos, Carl okay. Sagan's book, uh, uh, one of his fellow professors, actually, fellow scientists, actually created a whole like uh, categorization of, of civilizations. Mm-hmm. And they had the different levels of everything from the primordial phase to the Iron Age phase to, you know, uh, the, the phase where they'll either destroy themselves or they'll go to the stars. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the human race has been at that point for the last 50 years or so. You know, we're still at the point where are we going to destroy ourselves or are we going to go to the stars? Mm-hmm. And we're, we could go either way. At any moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's been like that for like the last 50 years. Uh, I just looked it up. It's the Kardashev scale. Okay. So, um, and so, and all that it's got listed here is type one, type two, and type three. So those are the, mm. the different ones. Type three is the, the, their entire home galaxy. Anything beyond that is like, like a type four, hypothetically or theoretically, would be harnessing all of the energy of the entire known universe. Which is a bit of a stretch, um, but there's also the idea that you know anything over a type two would start becoming indiscernible from nature, because they're able to harness uh, all of this energy in such a way that they can manipulate energy and matter in in such a way that our little brains and the way that we as uh, biological beings see this have no idea how to perceive how that would work. They, they would be essentially gods if you're above a type two. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that, that whole thing is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in getting back to the, uh, the transpermia idea of the Gaia hypothesis of saying, okay, well, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe Earth is its own. All the ecosystems of Earth are one large uh, biological unit or one large... Uh, uh, the word escapes me right now. One one organism. Mm-hmm. And just like we as organisms, we have different systems that work within us that help us grow and help us you know, get to the point that we can reproduce. And maybe humans are the next stage of 
the the Gaia organism reproducing onto um, uh, Terra Aries or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, Mars technically is the Latin name for Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, I think this stuff is fa- fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, with with the talk that you were giving during this um, this convention back in 2010, it kind of started with the talking about like where what your background is in space tourism mm-hmm. and how you're organized with the space tourism foundation society society excuse me and uh, and then you know the the things that you could foresee people potentially doing <laughs> and inventions that you've come up with and how people can uh, can potentially get it on yeah i mean sex is always an exciting topic and everybody wants to hear about oh let's talk about sex because it's you know what people get very excited about but it, it's just a small part of growing a civilization mm-hmm. you know having humans off world developing a species off world like lunarians or real martians mm-hmm. and have to deal with the radiation issues and the gravity issues where their bodies will physically change mm-hmm. and they will become a new species mm-hmm. and so eventually we will get into a situation where we're going to have people that live on the asteroid belt that are, look different mm-hmm. and communicate differently and you have people on mars who do the same thing and people on the moon and it, it's you know to bring this into current events, have you started watching the Expanse series on sci-fi? Yes. Okay. Well, no, I have not, but I, I've been seeing previews. I okay. don't have sci-fi a subscription. Okay. But um, no. this, that's, the, the, that's where I bring it this up. Gets into, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and yes. Uh, it's based on a series of books, which mm-hmm. I'm very interested to pull down, like the audiobooks and listen to on my game. Yeah. Uh, because it starts talking about how the human race will start changing as we start calling Physically changing, yeah. emotionally changing, yeah. mindset, everything. You're creating, and, you're creating and, a new species. Unless we have a Star Trek or Star Wars style instantaneous travel between uh, locations and we have like gravity generators and things like that. Nope. Or unless we can really, really turn Not up the idea. Not for a few more centuries. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. right there with you. Uh, unless we have terraforming, unless we have uh, instantaneous faster than light travel between points in time and space and, and yeah, uh, uh, artificial gravity generators, we're going to change very, very quickly mm-hmm. by being out in the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and those people will not be able to come back to Earth. Yeah. Because physically their bodies could not handle the gravity. Unless they, well, if, well, what'll, what'll end up happening is, I guess, let's, let's assume that they can go to Proxima. Um, uh, it's a bit far out. Well, we're, we're talking. It's, it's hard enough trying to get to the moon and Mars. Yeah. Which, those cl- well, yeah. Proxima. Well, I mean, let. And the bodies are going to evolve here <laughs> in the solar system alone. I mean, Proxima, they're going to be indistinguishable from Little green men. Well, what, what, what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is, if 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 let's say we we created a colony ship, mm-hmm. a generational colony ship, because it'll take something like ten generations to get there with our current theoretical understanding of uh, slower than light travel. Right. Because um, warp drive is theoretically possible. You just have to have some really ridiculous amounts of energy to do it and we don't have any way of generating that they got the physics energy. down for it but yeah. you know they'll need like a few billion more dollars to actually do prototypes yeah, yeah. Um, but so with Proxima let's assume that Proxima has a similar type of gravity as Earth like this is just for the sake of this this debate let's assume that it does what's going to end up happening is imagine if these people in this colony ship left Earth and just halfway there they decided to turn around and come back they're going to get there and they're going to go well shit how do we adapt to this so there's going to have to be some way of them 
I don't know, genetically engineering themselves to be able to turn back into almost normal humans. Or maybe it'll go, they'll go through a, a center stage that'll take them on to maybe what we would be if we could go directly there. More than likely what will happen is that generational ship will arrive on Proxima and we'll already have arrived. There will be actually uh, colonies on Proxima Centauri with a, a welcome party saying, Welcome! Congratulations! I, I, I've, I've, I've heard about this sort of stuff too because yeah. what's going to happen in the, the generations after the, the uh, colony ship leaving, we will further develop our, own, our uh, transportation, our uh, slower than light, um, slower than light speed uh, capabilities. And it's just like the Voyager probes. Eventually, there will be something that will catch up to the Voyager probes and, and go faster and, like, in a short amount of time, get to where they're at, and yep. then just blow them out of the water. Yep. And the same thing will end up happening. Uh, I think that's more than likely. Uh, what's to say that that whatever the technology that we develop doesn't catch up with the colony ship and go, okay, hey, we got a new engine system for you, so we can, we can speed you up. And it catches up, and it gives them a little bit of a nudge. Sure. And then it gets, you know half the remaining distance and another one shows up goes oh we got something even better now we're going to speed it up civilization or, yeah. or, or maybe civilization changes yeah. and maybe uh those they were forgotten yeah it's quite possible that there could have been some yeah. wars there could have been some other things happening and that whole generation ship was long forgotten and so those so are just like babylon 5 civilization got destroyed mm-hmm. they, and then they had to start all over again and a few more generations later okay now we're back in the space we're doing our thing and Oh, what's this? <laughs> Who are all these people here? Who are all these people? Like, Where'd they come oh, from? We, you, you're, you're us from a couple hundred years ago, huh? Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's, I think... This is all pure speculation, yeah. but yeah. By the way, uh, in Mountain View, California, they, I think they still do this, they have this conference called Contact. Okay. Where they actually have the SETI Institute, mm-hmm. NASA Ames folks, and a few other, uh, and, and lots of science fiction enthusiasts get together, and science fiction authors get together, and do world building. Where you literally create a world from scratch, and with the help of a lot of science fiction authors who are, you know, they, that's what they do, and the groups with SETI and other folks getting together, they actually design these worlds and they create entire new species of life forms on these these theoretical planets and see what happens at the at the end of the conference. They have them meet, and nine times out of ten, there's a war. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just the idea that there's not. Why does it have to be a carbon-based life form meaning another carbon-based life form? It could be a silicon-based mm-hmm. life form or some other type of exotic. Well, thing. I mean, how with how do they communicate? Communication is always a big challenge. Yeah. Well, I, like whenever we sent the Voyager probes out, that was that was part of it. Us trying to communicate and say, "Here's like who who's it, it, the Voyager probes do have directions on them. Mm-hmm. Like if you can figure out the directions, then it'll. I'm a human. I still can't figure out those directions. Okay. Well, <laughs> Well, and, and who's going to know what a record player is on another planet? Well, yeah, and, I mean, look at our technology today. It might the way, right? How do you yeah. hold it, keep the needle on just right so it doesn't... Yeah. You know, well, if if they... Let, let's say they assume that it's like, okay, well, there are grooves, and these grooves have waveforms on them. What is to say... Lots of assumptions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of assumptions. Well, it, if we're talking about a, a species that is that much further intellectually advanced than we are, then... I, it's safe to, to make certain assumptions that they're going to be smart enough to understand things, but you never know. Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. No, no, no worries. Um, so, anyway, sorry. Uh, 
So your background with the uh, Space Tourism Society, we you want me to give you all my background. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and let's talk about this so people know yeah. what. So uh, you, kind you, of know, what you just know me from the Apple Store. That's just one tiny piece of the puzzle, sir. Well, that's one where I met you, piece. and then through it's through like, that, I got to learn. The question all of these should other be: things. Why the hell did you go to work at the Apple Store since you used to work for McDonnell Douglas at the Kennedy Space Center? Yeah. That should be the real question. You know, I, I've I've seen all the pictures of you in front of spaceships and mm-hmm. with NASA T-shirts on. So yeah, yeah. so so yeah, um, yeah. I was a technical writer. Actually, I still am a technical writer for the last thirty some years, and I also got into IT and tech support as well. Mm-hmm. And I've worked for a variety of aerospace corporations, IT companies, dot coms uh, in Silicon Valley and other places. Traveled around the country doing that. Um, my huge, first passion has always been space. Um, I wasn't qualified to be an astronaut. I tried to get into the Naval Academy. That didn't work out. Um, did a bunch of different things to try to like you know get involved in the aerospace world, but I didn't have the right qualifications. I'm not an engineer. I'm more of a people person. I'm more of a communicator. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a vision guy, an idea guy. That's always been my, my passion. Uh, so after you know, even during working at the Kennedy Space Center, you know, not only did I work on Space Shuttle and Space Station, I was on this little project called the Delta Clipper Experimental. That thing there. Um, what he is pointing to is a uh, looks like the very tip top bit of a rocket. So I'll let you explain what that is. It's it's like a cone shape uh, and it looks like it's got engines coming off the bottom of it. Yeah. So uh, Elon Musk actually was inspired by this project. Okay. <clears throat> to help you guys figure this out. So the Delta Clipper Experimental was a Department of Defense project to try to build a fully reusable rocket ship. Mm-hmm. In other words, it takes off it takes off and lands. Now, this is the 1990s, which yeah, was like I, I remember seeing these things. Space shuttle range supreme, expendable rockets was the way to go. It was all about government space. Mm-hmm. The idea of being able to take off or to, to to take off and land, take off and land, take off and land repeatedly with the same vehicle was an unknown concept. It was science fiction. Yeah, and okay. and and I should just to clarify, we're not talking about the orbiter. No. Okay. I mean, the space shuttle orbiter is refurbishable, shall yeah. we say? I mean, you can take off with the space shuttle, return with the space shuttle, but it has to do months and months of, of, of cleaning and refurbishing and yeah. replacing the engines and then putting yeah, all the new tiles and, and stuff clean like that. And, yeah. you know, not replacing all the tiles, the ones that are damaged. Yeah. So it's semi reusable. Mm-hmm. The external tank, for example, it totally disintegrates in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, the solid rocket boosters are reusable after they do some series refurb of yeah. it. But you know, as as we know from the Challenger accident, they're they're not very reliable. Yeah, and and these and we, when we talk about reusability of solid rocket boosters, we're not talking about the level of reusability that the Falcon Nine rockets are today. And I have books on the original designs of the space shuttle program, mm-hmm. and one of the early designs was to have a heavy lift cargo plane uh, lift the shuttle up. And then the shuttle from high high altitude yeah. take off for the rest of the way. And they had a version that was basically a rocket powered carrier vehicle take it up to super high altitudes, mm-hmm. and then the shuttle would separate. Mm-hmm. And that rocket powered carrier vehicle had wings, and it would just land like an airplane. And is, do you know of any reason why they didn't go for with that? Because budget cuts and politics. It's all about budget. And politics. Whenever you talk about space, it's always about those two things. Well, which is which is why there, so many companies are starting to pop up to try to privatize space. 
or come up with ways of <clears throat> these companies are propping up because money. they are pet projects by several billionaires who love space who were raised on the Apollo program yeah. back in the day and I can get into a whole long diatribe <laughs> about that that the only reason we have the advances today right now is because these super space geeks like us who watched Star lived on Star Trek and Star Wars and now went off into these other industries and founded PayPal or founded Amazon.com mm -hmm. or founded these other companies where they made the real money. Yeah. And now they have all this cash and now they get to play. They're like, oh, hey, let's yeah. go ahead and try, try to things. do this again because yeah. the actual governments aren't doing it anymore. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a really good uh, documentary you should check out called The Orphans of Apollo. Okay. Where a group of space activists tried to buy the Russian space station Mir. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know if and they, I, they, I they, think they, I've heard about that. But they actually officially bought it for a few months until the Russian government said, oh, okay, fine, we're going to go along with NASA and do this International Space Station thing. And for some reason, NASA doesn't want to have two space stations simultaneously in orbit. We're just going to ground the Mir space station. It, 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 Mir is part of the current space station? No, or they took it no it's a separate space station. The Russians have built five different space stations over the years. Okay. And flown them and tested them and proved mm -hmm. upon them. The mirror was like the biggest and greatest one that they've yeah. had. Uh, USA finally got their act together with their own space station. It used to be called Space Station Freedom, then yeah. Space Station Alpha, then it's just the International Space Station, whatever. And they Or if, you, if you're familiar with the Neil Stevenson novel, Seven Eves, mm -hmm. it's Izzy. Well, <laughs> yes, for for the for you young whippersnappers now, that's called Izzy. But back in the day, it had different names. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember whenever I was in grade school, they were. Old. <laughs> I remember in grade school they were calling it Space Station Freedom, and yeah. up until they started just flat out referring it to it as the International Space Station, um, I always thought that it was still. I, I have books space on the evolution of the International Space Station and Space Lab and uh, Skylab, and it's quite amusing to see the politics and how they change the name depending upon who was in power at the time and who gotcha. they wanted to appease. Yeah. Well, so I guess, I guess what my question about Mir was, I thought that as they were building out the International Space Station, Mir was one of the modules on it for a while. So or... there were modules on the International Space Station that came from Russia. And this is what the whole deal was with Russia. They okay. wanted to have... The International Space Station was going to be this ridiculously expensive effort. And it was going to yeah. be a multi-nation effort. And they realized that they need they need help. Mm -hmm. And the Europeans could only do like one or two modules. That's about it. Yeah. The Japanese could do a thing. But the Russians, they knew their stuff. They knew space stations. So they were able to negotiate a deal with the Russians to take all their future modules that was going to go on Mir mm -hmm. and put them on the International Space Station. Okay. So yes, several modules. In fact... The International Space Station started with a core module that looks very similar to the original Mir. It's okay. like basically a Mir 2. Okay. The Russians were working on a replacement Mir space station. That became the core for the International Space Station. And eventually USA came up with more modules and started adding more, adding yeah. more, adding more. Now it's like it's hard to tell what's what anymore. It's yeah. like one giant collaboration. But they needed the Russians to help get it started with the foundation. Mm -hmm. So several of the core modules came from Russia first. And then things expanded out from there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and, and politics being politics, we couldn't, and of course the Russians are always being, bro always, always broke. They couldn't afford two space stations. Yeah. Space stations to maintain. So they worked with the Americans on this big one here and Mir Corp, which had just barely enough money to buy a few flights to the space station Mir mm -hmm. to keep it afloat, mm -hmm. uh, 
were just you know ignored, and the politics said, you know, the, the, the politicians said, we gotta get rid of this. So they got rid of the space station. But for a brief moment in time, there was a privately owned space station. Oh wow! Brief moment. Um, so is Mir still flying right now, like the original Mir, nope. or is it's gone? The, it's already burned up the atmosphere. Burned up in the atmosphere. Okay. No. Skylab is 79, Mir, I can't remember. I've actually seen parts of Skylab. Yeah. Like the parts that they were able to, uh, to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, salvage. Mm -hmm. Like it, like pieces of fiberglass and things like that that didn't fully burn up in the atmosphere. There was a a science and technology, uh, museum. 2001 looks like. Um, in Oklahoma city, I think the Kirkpatrick Center that has a big chunk of Skylab as well as it might actually have one of the Apollo capsules. Uh, at, at, at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., they have the uh, backup Skylab. So you can see okay. the full-scale Skylab module okay. at the Air and Space Museum. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a piece of, wonderful piece of history. It's very sad that they trashed it, but anyways. More stories. Yep. More um, so yeah, uh, the Space Tourism Society. So yes, so, like, so, so want to get, get through all that. Get back to get back to the conversation yeah. at hand here. So while I was working on the DCX project, um, I became a space activist. Mm-hmm. I discovered there's this ragtag band of fellow space individuals who are very excited about commercialization of space and expanding space act- human activity in space. Mm-hmm. And we're getting kind of frustrated that NASA and other governments really weren't going very fast or very far. So we became activists. We, we would lobby Congress and try to get more funding for certain projects and start making things happen. Um, that was the Space Frontier Foundation, was the group I got involved with. Mm-hmm. And they are very much a hardcore group of folks that got involved with the politics, and they started helping to... It became a networking group for individuals who wanted to create companies in space. Mm-hmm. Space companies of whether they're building robots, whether they're building satellite servicing systems, whether they're building full-on rocket ships. They, this was like a networking group. The Space Tourism Society was kind of like an offshoot of that, kind of a side project of that, where, you know, you've got the commercial space activities going on. Well, what, what's, what actual activities are you doing? Yeah. You know, you're going to have factories in space. You're going to have uh, 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 commercial ventures of all types in space, including hotels. Yeah. Like flying. Like people want to see what, what it's like being in zero-G for a few days. They fly up, they stay a couple nights, and then they come back. The oldest example of this, the oldest piece of, here's a trivia for you. John Denver, the musician, mm-hmm. okay, contacted the Russians back in the 80s and said, I'll give you a million bucks if you let me fly, fly on the, uh, the the Russian space station. Okay. You know, this is like publicly, public knowledge, go look up the other articles. Um, he was denied, okay. but he was one of several people that tried to fly either with NASA or with uh, the Russians to go into space as a tourist, mm-hmm. as a visitor, just to go. Um and then in the early 1990s, there were actually two successful att- uh, missions uh, flying people. Mm-hmm. They weren't officially tourists. They're officially they're technically cosmonauts, but you got Helen Sharman and you got Tohiro Akiyama uh, from Japan. So you have a British person and you have a Japanese person that became, they either won a contest or there was a, one was a, won a contest, the other one was a reporter, a Japanese reporter was paid by the, the Japanese mm-hmm. uh, magazine to actually fly on the Russian space station. This is 1992. So the first actual, I, I technically call them tourists, but then mm-hmm. not. They kind of had to like call themselves cosmonauts because mm-hmm. tourism was still kind of a, a woo-woo well, word. Well, yeah, like almost like taboo within. Very that. taboo. Yeah. The term yeah. space tourism was taboo up until the time Dennis Tito flew in 2001. Okay, I know who you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, the yeah. millionaire who. Yeah. So Dennis Tito, 
actually was working with Mir Corp, that company I was talking mm-hmm. about, initially to fly with the Mir Space Station, but then when the Russians uh, uh, downed the Mir Space Station, he said, well, what am I going to do? He signed an agreement with the Russians, and he says he's going to fly, and the Russian says, yes, you signed the agreement, you're going to fly. We'll fly you on the International Space Station. <laughs> took a little while longer, like another yeah. year or two later, but he was able to fly to the International Space Station as the first private astronaut. Mm-hmm. NASA and the European Space Agency tried to f- stop him tooth and nail. They tried everything they could, yeah. but the Russians backed him up. And he went through all the full cosmonaut training, survival mm-hmm. training. This is a 60-year-old guy yeah. Yeah. who has more money than God. He's a Los Angeles investor, based investor. I've, I've met him several times. And he wanted to fly into space. That was one of his dreams, his passions. I mean, he's got all this money in the world. He wants to do all these things. He always wanted to fly into space. So here was his opportunity. And so the Russians backed him up. He went through full training. He was physically fit. He was able to do all the things that cosmonauts were able mm-hmm. to do. He was in great shape. Only thing stopping him was NASA. And there was actually an article about the polit- the, the international incident that happened. Uh, there was an example of... Um, the cosmonauts come to the United States to go training at the Johnson Space Center in yep. Houston. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in two, early 2001, late 2000, I think it was, I think it was early 2001, um, the cosmonauts and Dennis Tito, the, the two cosmonauts he was training with, went to the Johnson Space Center because he's already done all the training in Russia, right? Yep. So now they're here in the States. They let the Russians in. They did not let the American in. Because he wasn't... An official... Here's an American yeah. on American soil going to the American Space Center. He was not allowed to go in. But they let the Russians in. Well, hey, we're, we're, you know, we're, having, we're having plenty of those buddy-buddy sort of things with the Russians these days, well, too. So, yeah. Back in the day, it was totally unheard of. And so there's this huge controversy about it. Mm. As it was, NASA never gave him official training on how to fly on the U.S. side of the International Space Station. Okay. But he still went up, mm-hmm. and there were all these politics about like you can only be on this side of the space station, on this side, not this side, you know. And Dennis, and Dennis it's like basically like you can only go down these tubes, but you can't go, go there. Yeah, yeah exactly. you can't go over there. Total bullshit. Yeah, total, total bullshit. Um, and of course, the astronauts could not say how they really felt because he said, you know, fine, whatever, it's all cool. But the politicians and the yeah. administrators just like saying, no, no, can't have this. Oh no, private individuals flying in space. No, no, big bad deal. Ooh, no, can't have that. Dennis Tito's response was, I'm 60 years old. I know when not to push a button. Okay? Yeah. You know, he, he's, yeah. he's an adult. He's responsible. He's been trained. Yeah. He knows how to deal with it. He, and he told me the story. Uh, uh, he was at, at this one event that uh, um, one time while they were up there, the U.S. space toilet broke down. Oh, no. So all the astronauts are having to come down the hall to the, to Russian, space the Russian side. And... Dennis had to teach them how to use the Russian space That's toilet. That's funny. That's really funny. That's Ooh. really sad. Sad. That's really funny. A little piece of trivia for you. Yeah. But yeah, there's been seven private space travelers. They're not just called space tourists or afraid to say call it that, but they really are no. um, since that time. Okay. And, well, yeah. I mean, so uh, since then, what we've seen in space tourism is... Uh, we've seen Virgin Galactic start trying to get White Knight and Spaceship 
one or spaceship, spaceship two? one spaceship one uh, yeah that was the historic flight in 2004 yep yep, yep. Um, so they've been trying to get that off the ground uh, off the well, ground I'll, I'll get to uh, I'll, I'll talk about that la- that part later but okay. yeah it, 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 am I am I jumping too far ahead you're jumping a little too far okay so, basically Virgin Galactic yes um, they were well, actually before Virgin Galactic there was this thing called the X Prize mm-hmm. it started in 1996 and it took many many years finally um, uh, a competition for a to build a privately owned, privately operated spaceship to go to the edge of space, and that's like it's not in orbit, but the edge of space, which is like three hundred twenty-five thousand miles. I can't remember, and it's 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 hundred kilometers up, something like that. Roughly, yeah, 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 roughly, yeah. roughly that, and that twice within two weeks. Yeah, yeah, it, to show reusability in exactly. fast turnaround time. Exactly, and so it was a privately funded project. Well, actually. It took them years to get the funding, yeah. um, and they did some weird insurance thing. But anyways, it took a long time, but eventually they found a real sponsor, a real corporate sponsor, mm-hmm. to pay for the $10 million prize. It was a $10 million prize for whoever did this. And it's most likely going to take, and I mean, they should have done this ahead of time, it's going to take more than $10 million to probably build out this system. Oh, yeah, yeah the Virgin Galactic, I mean, I'm sorry, Scale Composites, which was the company owned and run by Bert Rutan, spent over $20 million. For a $10 million prize. Correct. But the more important thing was to show that it could be done. Bingo. It yep. was the inspiration, the idea that you could actually do this. Mm-hmm. That got a lot of people very excited. Yep. Over a dozen uh, teams competed. Only one truly had the funding to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bert Rutan, who, I don't know if you ever heard of Bert, Bert mm-hmm. Rutan. Look him up. Um, he basically is the modern Frank, uh, the modern... Uh, Orville Wilbur Wright. Okay. He, he has reinvented the airplane dozen times over over the last 20, 30 years. He he has the coolest fucking looking aircraft ever you've ever seen. Just custom built, hand built aircraft. He's done a lot of commissions for the for the federal government for the, like like top secret government projects, mm-hmm. or he'll do custom one offs for like Richard Branson and other pe- other people. Um, but he uses fiber composite material. Okay. And so he was like one of the pioneers of, of doing fiber composite airframes for aircraft. So his vehicles were super light, lightweight. Yeah. Just just amazing, amazing stuff. And he kept redesigning aircraft in all these weird configurations just to make them lighter, make them faster, make them smoother. He's designed at least two aircraft that have flown around the world, like nonstop. Okay. Just designed like super big wing yeah aircraft. i say the are, are we talking the the big like the big solar ones there's like the global explorer and there's a couple of those these, these are powered aircraft they're not gliders they're not solar powered. well i so the the solar ones that are doing it they're they look like giant gliders with huge wingspans well, this is, uh, these but are, these but, are powered vehicles but but the well the solar ones are powered as well they just ha- happen to have solar panels to charge batteries yeah. to run the engines for whatever there was a plane engines. called the voyager okay aircraft that actually did the, the, one of the first non-stop around the world flights mm-hmm. there's a couple other ones that have done it since then but they were using the company scale composites to design and build the vehicle to do it mm-hmm. this is a very special very specialized field and these guys are like the best experts in the world so anyways Burger tan was getting bored and he wanted to do something beside airplanes. Mm-hmm. And then he heard about the X-Prize and was like, I could build a spaceship. <laughs> so this guy's never built spaceships before, but he has built airplanes inside, out, and sideways. Mm-hmm. Like every design, high altitude, high speed, yeah. low speed, whatever, he can do it. Uh, but now he had to figure out how to build an aircraft that can go to space. So he was taking his aviation knowledge and then adapting it with rocket power. 
Yeah. And okay. There's it's there's a lot of math and a lot of complications behind doing all, engineering behind all that stuff. Well, it is rocket science. So, and yeah. uh, he talked to his buddy, who was one of his fellow, you know, guy who builds vehicles for all time, uh, Paul Allen. Okay. You may have heard of him. Oh yeah. He, he and Bill Gates started a little company called Microsoft. Um, so he's got all sorts of fun little projects. Yep. So he he told Paul, I says, Paul, I'm gonna go to space. But it ended up that. Paul Allen is even a bigger space geek yeah. than him. And Paul Allen, you know, he actually did the Science Fiction Hall of Fame in Seattle. Okay. So look it up. But Paul Allen is a ginormous space geek as well. And he's doing another project right now, um, Strata Launch, which I'll tell you later if I have time. We're, we're totally not talking about sex and space, guys. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but all of this is related. It is. We're, really we're getting there. We're, we're getting, getting there. there. This, I hope you got enough time. This is going to be here forever. Uh, but it's good stuff. So Paul Allen said, yes, go for it. And so Paul Allen gave Bert about $20 million to start working on this project. Mm -hmm. Took him a bunch of years, and he did all sorts of prototyping and flying and figured out the idea of having a carrier plane lift a smaller plane to a really high altitude. And if you get to about 60,000 feet or something like that, you have a tiny fraction of the atmosphere compared to being at the ground level. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need a huge amount of rocket fuel to get up into space. Mm -hmm. yep. And, you know, it's... a very, very smart idea. You know, just get above the, most of the atmosphere and then launch. Yeah. And so that's well, what it, it's, it's like, it, I mean, aerodynamics and hydrodynamics are the same sort of, are the same, really the same thing. Uh, you're just dealing with fluid. Like you're dealing with some fluid. Some density of fluid. You're dealing with mass. Mass yeah. is still always a big yeah. issue. So, so how much fuel can you stick into an aircraft and carry it to a high altitude? That's the big deal. Mm -hmm. So the carrier plane's got to be huge with giant wings. Yeah. So the White Knight one craft was designed for that, just yep. you know, designed to be a big carrier with this huge payload underneath it, and it had to be this giant fuel-filled thing. It didn't have much more than, than just like one pilot if you're lucky. So the X Prize competition happened in September and October of 2004. I was part of the X Prize team at the time, uh, volunteering to help out with the film crew, and um, we were able to, you know organized and planned and witnesses of historic event mm -hmm. where they actually actually they did their first test flight in july of that year just to see if they could do it mm -hmm. through scale and it worked and so a few months later they announced hey we're gonna go for the prize and so they had this huge media hoopla coming in all these <laughs> folks from all over the world came in and check this out and you know international folks and and uh that was right around the time when richard branson showed up and said hey I got this name called Virgin Galactic. You guys have a spaceship. Can I buy it? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so so Paul Allen got his money back. Yeah. So that they they slapped a big it's, Virgin logo on yeah, the side. Well, yeah, I can show you the early logo, the yeah. early, early original yeah. logo. It wasn't very fancy, yeah. but they for the first of the two, actually for the both X Prize flights, they had uh, the Virgin Galactic logo on it. Mm -hmm. Cause you know, hell, why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? And so yeah, so then in. Late September and early October. October 3rd was the last day. October 3rd, 2004, um, he flew to the edge of space. I think it was Benny? I can't remember. It was two, two, two different pilots each, each time, mm -hmm. one for each. Um, and they flew the edge of space. We caused history to happen and um, got our industry, the private space industry, really motivated and excited. Yeah. And all of a sudden, other people started coming into play saying, hey, I want to start a rocket company. I want to go into space and do business and mine asteroids and make a trillion dollars and blah, blah, blah. And so that was like a real, a big mm -hmm. jumpstart. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of around 
around the same time that like SpaceX ended up being founded too. SpaceX so, was founded in 2002. Okay. And I met Elon Musk very briefly at a convention, in a, a very private space summit <laughs> meeting with Dennis Tito in 2003, where they were trying to figure out, okay, can we do this? Can this happen? I don't know. We're yeah. trying to figure it out. You know, at the time, Elon Musk, all he wanted to do was like put a little, he wanted to grow plants on Mars. He, he still wants to, figure, to grow plants on Mars. He was trying to figure out how do I get these plants on Mars and have them grow them on Martian soil. And, and he talked to the Russians and other folks and no one would give him the time of day. And I was like, but I want to go to, to, go to Mars and put this stuff on here. And one thing led to another. And so I was like, well, damn it, I'm going to build my own rocket ship. Yep. And it goes from there. Yep. And what, next week there, I think I think it's the 18th, there there's SpaceX is launching the first... Uh, the first relaunch of a previously used uh, oh, is the relaunch? No, yeah, nice. I think it's the relaunch. I'm on their uh, 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 media Facebook page. Gotcha. So I'll just see if there's any announcements. <coughs> but uh, yeah, so as you may have noticed, I've been I'm, I've been involved. Yes. Yeah, and I think I think through knowing you, it has made me more aware of the different things going on uh, in that realm. Aside from, you know, being a big fan of the stuff that, like, SpaceX is doing. Like, part of me, like, I, I look at Blue Origin and the stuff that Bezos is doing, and, and I just kind of shrug my shoulders because it doesn't seem that impressive compared to the stuff that SpaceX has been doing. Like, SpaceX is actually flying stuff no, to, no, the, no, no. to the International Space Station. Um, but, um, just my opinion. Just my opinion. So, yeah. so so a few members of the DCX team were hired by Blue Origin many years ago to work on a reusable rocket system. The original Blue Origin vehicle didn't look anything like what you see nowadays. Yes. It was a totally different design. Um, but they have been quiet and persistent. And that's very smart for them to do that because they had no idea if this would work. And they would have to redesign the vehicle again and again and again and again so they could figure out how to build a reusable rocket ship. Which they did with the help of our friends from the DCX team and also just a lot of very smart young people coming out of college saying, hey, I want to build something really cool. Mm -hmm. And they disappeared. The launch, the testing area was actually in West Texas, same mm -hmm. as SpaceX. Mm -hmm. um, and they, in the middle of Cowfields. Cowfields Central. Yeah. Yep, yep, West Texas. And uh, they just tested, tested, flew, flew, broke a lot of stuff. And they only just recently started coming out publicly with the things they're doing because they have more and more successes. Mm -hmm. So I think kudos to both of them for oh, doing yeah. what they're doing. It's totally different styles. Yeah. Totally yeah, different I, approaches. I think, I think that's where I'm, I'm getting at. And remember, competition is good. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I completely agree with you on that. Um, I, I, For instance, whenever I look at this stuff that SpaceX is doing, like, and Elon Musk has come out and said, well, here is the end goal. Here's what we're going for. And here are all the all the steps that we're going through from now until then are are our milestones effectively, like so that we know that we're going in the right direction. And the end goal is to to a full on one million person colony on Mars. And because I haven't heard anything from Bezos about long term goals, um, because he's because just like he said, he's being quiet about it. Mm -hmm. um, that's where it, like I guess I don't have the same sort of. Uh, investment in, the emotional investment in blue origin well, that they're I different do in personalities yeah. and they have different approach to things yeah. you know elon musk he's a rock star he's got that whole tony stark thing going on he's like oh yeah i'm, I'm just gonna build this thing over the mars and he's inspiring a generation of people he's the yeah. he, he is elon musk is the steve jobs of this generation 
Yeah. Part of that statement makes me very sad. But it also, another part of that... Well, no, 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 I, I don't disagree with you. But also it makes me optimistic. Like, it's, it's both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Because even, even like, you know, 10, 10 levels removed, I've worked for Steve Jobs. Right. And, like, I know what that was like whenever we lost him. Right. And I, so, so putting that sort of the visionary title or the, the master of the future title on someone like Elon Musk kind of worries me because it's like, it's like I had a puppy that grew into an old dog and died. And oh, now I have a new puppy again, and I know that old that new puppy is going to grow into an old dog and die. It, it's it's a certain level of, of fear of that what what all of us went through in two thousand eleven. Yes, that's yeah, what well, what scares me. My perspective is, people need inspiration. People need to be excited about the future and themselves, and people want to become part of something greater than themselves. I couldn't agree more. And once in a while, an, an individual comes out to get people really excited about a thing. Don't know what that thing is, but there's a thing, <laughs> and I'm excited about it, and I want to be part of it. And so these individuals come out of the woodwork once in a while and proclaim this, and they say it in such a way that you're like, whoa, dude. <laughs> and suddenly you're hooked. And it's like, I want to work for that guy. What the hell is he doing? I'm looking forward to solar shingles on my house and battery packs that run my entire house and there you el- go. crazy electric cars and, and, that's and people flying people to Mars. Because yeah. he's, got, he's, he's thinking yeah. long term, he's thinking big picture, and trying to save the world at the same time. Yeah. And on, I, I mean, back to my original thought about uh, how I feel about Blue Origin, I look at the stuff that Bezos is doing and I go, I really couldn't care. Two shits about having drone deliveries of the things I order Once from Amazon. Again, but people, a, yeah, totally, totally. Bezos yeah. has inspired enough people to do enough things. I mean, <laughs> Amazon is still like, Amazon.com. Hello. Well, well I mean, okay, it's, so it's 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 the it keep constantly improving their processes. Do you have? We we were getting products almost same day sometimes. So so I'm in completely complete agreement with you. And this is and what I'm about to say is is me eating humble pie about my previous statements. The microphone you're speaking into, I ordered on Wednesday. It was supposed to arrive on Friday, and then last night at 10 p.m. I got a this item has finally shipped. It arrived by 10 a.m. this morning, and like th- th- this is something I take advantage of. It's not to me. It, it it's too normal it's too real world about having world problems exactly spoiled brats totally 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 Uh, but what i'm getting at is that it it, that the things that that jeff bezos is doing is it's it's too real world it's like oh of course this is gonna work like this because why wouldn't it this is the world that we live in high speed cargo transport to the moon so you can resupply your friends and family uh, with the latest in uh, what is this mochi (laughs) <laughs> and all that stuff, you know, you know, getting the fine Japanese cuisine yeah. to show up in at, at, at Lunar Base One. You know, you know, I want transporter systems like in Star Trek, although those are probably beyond the warp drive, the most science fiction part. I'm show of, my of, age here and mention the transporter system from Space 1999, the Eagle Five spacecraft, which actually was a modular based system that was. It's very visionary for its time and worked perfectly for for lunar activity. Look it up. Okay. 
I'm showing my gray hair. I have no idea what that is. No. Uh, so uh, with so let's actually get into uh, the 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 SpaceX stuff because well, we, are, it, we are talking about SpaceX. Well, space sex space stuff. All that, that uh, bit yeah. because because we're we're getting kind of kind of deep into the allotted time for the so, podcast. So this, was the, like this was the prologue, kids, yeah. to get you warmed up. For those who don't know what's going on in the space industry, is the hell. Of By the way, this is this is what how how most of the podcasts go. It's it turns in, it turns into 45 minutes of prologue. So, so the Space Tourism Society is a nonprofit, 501c3, based in Los Angeles. My friend John Spencer is the founder of it. Um, for a while there, I was the vice president of the organization during the 19, early, early aughts, early 2000s. And I is that what we call them now? The aughts? Aughts, OOs, what okay. we call them, OOs. The OOs, back in the O's, back in the O's <laughs> days, man. O days, not the old days, the O days. Okay. Something like that. So, so besides doing uh, lots of public presentations, I also created mock-ups of various space tourism prototypes because if you keep talking about space tourism, you get no one gets the concept unless you show them. Oh, yeah. So you build physical mock-ups or you make drawings and designs of what would a hotel in space look like and we were looking for down-to-earth analogies that would make more sense and john spencer made the discovery that cruise ships make a hell of a lot more sense than a hotel because mm -hmm. what's a cruise ship it's a fully stocked vessel with supplies going into a harsh environment taking a bunch of people to get drunk and do silly things and have entertainment and party their butt off and then come back base back home mm -hmm. and so your cruise ship is going out to the ocean, and the ocean can be a dangerous place. And so they have all these systems on that cruise ship to help protect people, like lifeboats and you know uh, life vests and 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 you know radar systems and all sorts of stuff to protect you. And of course, you know weatherproofing and and you can batten down the hatches if you need to and stuff like mm -hmm. that when the weather gets really bad. Um, so that was our analogy. So instead of saying hotels in space, we're talking cruise ships yep. in space. Like a, or a space cruise. Yeah, space cruise or space cruiser or orbital, mm -hmm. orbital cruiser or something mm -hmm. like that. So we're working on that concept of a, of a cruise ship in space. Okay. And so we even have designs of these cruise ships. They have these giant graceful wings that are giant solar panels or radiators to kind of excess, send out the excess heat. The big difference between spaceships designed for space tourism versus spaceships designed by the government mm -hmm is creature comfort and design and design make yeah. it beautiful yeah. make it lovely make it make it a work of art mm -hmm. that you want to be in and enjoy doing things with well along with that uh have you've seen the um the prototypes that spacex has shown off of their their uh, orbital capsule their crew capsule right Oh, it's beautiful. You're talking about the, talking about the, the dragon, or uh, yeah, dragon capsule. Yeah, I've seen yeah, dragon too. I've seen it, dragon. It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, I'm going way. Well, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, what, what, what I'm getting at is that uh, that when we talk about uh, attention to design and to making something aesthetically pleasing, mm -hmm. that SpaceX, that's what part of it is. They're making it utilitarian enough for the government to use, but they're also saying, you know what, you can also make it look really, really nice at the same time, mm -hmm. just with a little bit of effort, and it's not going to cost anything extra. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I saw the the Dragon capsule for the first time, and like Elon Musk is climbing around inside and poking around on touch screens, I, I, the first thing I thought was, there's a lot of extra space in there, 
and then realize mm-hmm. most of that extra space would be filled with other things mm-hmm. and things that they have to take up to the space station and whatnot. But I thought that was it was beautiful, beautiful on the inside. Yeah, this is actually a picture of the space cruise ship that John Spencer designed. Okay. So you have these wings. The orbital super yacht. It's the orbital super yacht, and it makes it. We did a lot of research on super yachts and mega yachts. Okay. And so there are, besides cruise ships, which are basically for thousands of people at a time going mm-hmm. out there, super yachts are much more exclusive. They're much more private. And so super yachts are like in the 100 foot longer range for yachts, and then the mega yachts are like, like 150, I think, okay. bigger. Um, if you ever look them up, you have these. These are the yachts that have smaller yachts that detach from them. They could. Yeah. Or a helicopter. <laughs> they have a helicopter landing pad on them. Yeah. We're talking James Bond. Yeah. Yeah. There's a handful of them that actually double as submarines. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. It, it, there's some pretty sweet James Bond stuff. That's super cool. So these are the playthings of the super rich. It's it's amazing what what the the thin line is between being super rich and being a super villain. Very, thin. <laughs> very thin. Paul Allen, remember the person we mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, has yeah. four mega yachts. Oh wow! Okay. No one knows that for this in the industry, but he has these giant big boats that he throws private parties on, and they're as well equipped as a spaceship with all all gadgets, the gizmos, all the things. and toys, toys, man, oh, jet skis and helicopter you, pads. I mean, and all if, that stuff. if you were a billionaire. And I mean multi-billionaire who just – it was just fuck off money. Then what are you going to do with it? Like I mean me, there, there's things – there's plenty of things that I would like to do to uh, improve the world around me. But then at some point you just go, you know what? I want some, some – I just want to do something ridiculous today. I'm going to design or get together with some designers and, and make a, a supervillain boat, a yacht, yeah, submarine I mean, thing. Money does things to people. People mm-hmm. are different when it comes to money. And I have a number of friends, in fact, a couple of Apple friends who have made a certain amount of money, and they don't talk to me anymore. They're off in their own world. They're, mm-hmm. they're off in their own level because they made this X amount of dollars, and they now have a different group of friends now yeah. that are also a certain wealth group that they mm-hmm. communicate with. You know, I've, I actually know several millionaire-type people um, that only meet at these special situations where, okay, I'm, I'm an equal. Because mm-hmm. I go to these events at a point where they, they consider me an equal briefly because I'm going to the special exclusive event. Mm-hmm. I've gone to a bunch of these things. And so we're up here on the street that never give me a time of day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, it, it's a money thing. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely money, it's money, money thing. But you're right. What really defines a person is what they do with that wealth and how they treat people. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how I judge my friends, too, is how they treat people. It doesn't matter how wealthy they are, how poor they are. Do you treat them with, with respect? Mm-hmm. Now, getting back to the stuff here. Totally <laughs> Pull yourselves back no. to the original <laughs> storyline. Sorry. Um, so you've got people with vision. You've got people with ideas. You've got people with money. It's hard to get them all together in the same place. Yes. <laughs> You'll have this one guy with this great idea who convinced this guy with a lot of money. and say, hey, let's do this thing. For example, Biosphere 2. You ever yep. Biosphere 2? Yep. No, it was an experiment in Tucson, near Tucson, Arizona, where they try to create a total self-contained habitat to see what it would be like to build a little space habitat that you can can you live in. Can it be self-sustaining? Right. Could could we build something like this on Mars? And that was yeah. funded by a Texas billionaire. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it was ultimately a failure. 
Um, but we learned a lot. You learned a lot. Yes. I mean, that's what happens with experiments. Failures happen. Yeah. So, you know, why not try? Yeah. I, I think whenever I was watching a documentary on Biosphere 2 is that one of I, – I, I came out of it thinking – was it maybe it just wasn't big enough like like think like earth this beautiful ball of dirt that's flying around ball of dirt and metal and water that's flying around a a giant fusion reactor in space um it is its own contained system but i think that you have it has to be of a certain scale for it to to be able to become self sustaining you have to have an organic system that's mm-hmm. interactive and have other life forms to help work with you on it mm-hmm. the problem with biosphere 2 besides some politics which i won't get into right now um, the cement was absorbing the oxygen mm-hmm. and they were running out of air oops and so they were self-contained mm-hmm. and slowly suffocating Guys, we're going to have to open the windows and pull in a little extra air today. <laughs> exactly. You can't do that in space. Um, but the whole idea um, of, of Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars and start a civilization with a million people, why not prototype this and test this out closer to home? Like try it on the moon? Like on the moon? Hello? Well, who's to say that that's not what's going to happen? You know? Well, I mean, Elon Musk is so focused on Mars and everybody's all excited about Mars and this huge effort with the Falcon Heavy going to Mars... Why don't they prototype and test a habitat a little bit closer to home? If they don't do it in orbit, do it on the freaking moon where they can mine the resources there. Yeah. And I've got friends who have actually done, um, it's called contour crafting, and they've actually done basically 3D printing of structures, mm-hmm. like full-on mm-hmm. habitats in unusual environments. And my friends are working on, since there may or may not be water, they're trying sulfur as a... Uh, they're trying other materials to kind of get the water, get the, I don't remember the term, sorry about that, the term to create bricks mm-hmm. or to connect the different, the lunar dirt together, you know, whether it's sulfur or some other material that make it super, super hot to connect the lunar soil together to create a wall. And so they're doing some really advanced 3D printing technologies to remotely be able to build structures on the moon. Mm-hmm. And this is the type of stuff that we can do on the moon, we can do it on Mars, all that stuff, but we need to test it out. We need to create habitats on the moon, prove that people can survive based on these technologies before even consider going on a four-year trip or Well, the, the chemical makeup of the moon is very, very similar to Earth. And um, they've done reconnaissance missions with satellites that there's plenty of water. They're all in the dark dark parts yeah, of craters regions, yeah, yeah. Um, really so cool. and there's tons of helium 3 too for fuel so, yeah so there's 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 effectively there are resources to, to do all this we just have to to park something up there that can actually mm-hmm. start doing it right so um, I mean I guess one, one question that I would have is can we do it and it be robotic and where we can control the robots from here on earth or do we actually need to to move people up there up because it, you, you, yeah. you, need, you need people to test actually living there yeah. right so yeah well, yeah, I, well I, I mean i mean prior to the living there part to to like doing the, oh, the yeah, testing yeah, yeah, for yeah. 3d printing to see if uh if you can 
send up a, uh, a bunch of rovers and smaller robots that can do the, the basic construction work to start the whole exactly. project off. And then once you know that that's working, then you start moving astronauts right. out. So you've seen the movie The Martian, right? Yes. And you read the book. Yes. Well, I did the audio book, which arguably is better than both the book and the movie. I the audio book is fucking phenomenal. Sure, sure. Okay. So the idea with... The ideas that the author had got about creating the Mars habitat is based on a lot of stuff that uh, uh, Robert Zuberman's been doing about creating a series of rockets that go up there, generate fuel for the return trip mm -hmm. while waiting for the other folks to get arrived there, and have some basic habitats at the ready before people even show up. Well, I think that's also the the plan that uh, that SpaceX has is that they're they're going to try to do. Um, they're, they're they're copying Robert Zuberman's idea. Yeah. This is not a new thing. Yeah. It's just that converting uh, uh, water into hydrogen and uh, into into like high well like hydrogen oxygen and uh, in like a kerosene mix or something like that so, natural gas effectively yeah. and exactly exactly so so those concepts have been around for quite a while and and that's great more power to them so back to space tourism and all that um, if I can show you some other space tourism designs if I've never seen. Um, these are other types of structures and habitats that have been designed by different groups. Bigelow Aerospace, by the way, Bigelow Aerospace has actually put two prototype space habitats in orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, one in 2006, one in two, uh, 2005 and 2007, I think. Um, inflatable. Yeah. Inflatable structures that he wanted to create a series of, uh, you know, they could be habitats that could be used for tourism, habitats that could be used for military, for science, for whatever. Uh -huh. And so he's Robert Biggle is actually building the closest we've got to actual space tourism habitats. And well, and was it a month ago or six, sometime in the last six months? Um, the ISS did a test of one of the inflatable modules. Bigelow Aerospace yep. launched a module yep. to the space station, and now it's a new addition. And so, so NASA's testing out. Um, this inflatable habitat to expand the space station's uh, volume, at, volume capacity, yep. which is great. Yep. Um, just a little piece of trivia for you guys. Bigelow bought this technology from NASA back in the 90s. <laughs> it was called TransHab. It was going to be canceled by NASA because you know this is the way NASA works. They do a great thing and then they cancel it. And so Bigelow bought it, refined it, made it better, and here we go. He's It's privatized. He's and selling it back to NASA. Yeah. <laughs> which... Hell, why not? Yeah. No, and, and, like, one of the images that you have up on the screen is a very large Taurus. Um, and, like, th I'm thinking of uh, 2001, uh, yeah, 2001, A Space Odyssey, the uh, the dual Taurus system that they have on the space station there that I think it's radius of 300 feet, so 100 yards, um, or a 100 yard radius Taurus uh, at a specific speed will they've done the math yeah. that it'll generate uh, effect almost real world gravity mm -hmm. so i like me just my opinion like that sounds like that might be one of the better uh, ideas on how to get started with doing like how do we build that Taurus? Well, I mean, if you're talking, are you talking or the, outer space? Or are you talking on a planet? Because on the moon you've got gravity. Mars you've got gravity. I'm talking. About, I'm talking about in orbit. Well, in orbit. Okay. Now yeah. we're, okay. Now you're talking about that. Okay. I'm, so I'm, like like uh, the before. Well, like, so we could we could effectively launch and start trying to do things on the moon again. We could do that whenever. We just have to get the funding behind it. 
Because, well, basically the Apollo science is already there. So we know how to get to the moon. You, you just need individuals with the money and the willpower to do it. Exactly. Which That's what I'm getting at. going on for 30 years. Um, but so when we're talking about space tourism, um, the two things that I think of are either doing the super yachts or the super uh, orbital cruise ships mm-hmm. or having a, a, an orbital hotel. And the orbital hotel, would would the better design that I've seen is something like the, the dual Taurus uh, that are spinning opposite each other, which creates... Weird movement dynamics. Yeah, but it, back it, to it, it does create space odyssey, sure. Um, but there's there's been lots of variation designs out there, and there's book tons of books on space stations that have been out published over the especially in the 1970s. That's when this is, the golden age of space station design was actually in the mid 70s when Skylab came out. Mm-hmm. Around 1976, there's about I've got about a dozen books are all around that same time frame mm-hmm. where people were. There was the Stanford Taurus, and there was a uh, you know some of the other NASA research projects about creating. Uh, giant habitats that are ring systems and all that. Well, I guess the reason the reason why I'm bringing up the Taurus system is because because of the spinning nature of the Taurus, mm-hmm. it creates artificial gravity yep. through. Is it centrifugal force? It, I get centrifugal and centrifugal, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it spins. It causes, it causes people to want to fly out to yeah. the extreme ends, and so as long as they're in the outermost ends, then then they'll stay planted on the on the exactly surface of the habitat. But the closer you get to the center, the gravity the, gets weaker and weaker and weaker to into the dead center where there's no gravity, and you're just floating. You're just yeah, floating exactly. Around. Yeah, and so, that's all fine. Well, so I guess for, what I'm what I'm trying to argue is arguing in favor of the Taurus system is that. It allow it could allow tourists to fly from through whatever method, whether they're sitting on top of a of a fire uh, a firework that we what 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 is the uh, the term that I have heard uh, a trash can sitting on top of a cherry bomb um, where we shoot them up on a rocket or whether or not we have some sort of um, some orbiter that can uh, take off like a plane get up to high altitude, kick off a rocket engine, get up into orbit, we'll get up to speed to go into orbit, and then take some, take these people to said hotel, so, and then bring them back. So, if I may, okay, no, no. on this, um, I created a series of charts describing the evolution of the industry, Okay, and I have this whole thing about what's called space experiences. Mm-hmm. It's a triangle, and you slice it up into pieces here, and at the very beginning you have computer simulations and virtual worlds, Second Life and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can do stuff, games on... Like, like, like things that uh, things that are happening right now in the industry is uh, virtual reality. Exactly, like virtual reality type systems. And this is where the vast majority of people can participate mm-hmm. in right now. This is about participation, okay. how people, you and I, can actually get involved doing some type of space-like activity. Yeah. The ground level, computer games. Computer simulations, VR, whatever, you can AR, uh, that's what you can do right now. The next level up are immersive simulations where you go to some type of theme park mm-hmm. where they have this habitat you can go into and walk around and you can have a, or maybe you go to a, a space center and you get to actually like sit inside a space camp. Or like sending your kids to space camp whenever space they're a kid. Yeah, yeah. Where it's really right. awesome because yeah. you get to pay to go to the simulation and you feel like you were becoming an astronaut. Exactly. That type of yeah. stuff. The next level up, zero gravity flights. Mm-hmm. There's zero G Corp, and there's the European counterparts and the Russian counterpart. Where you can actually pay money right now, like five thousand dollars, to actually do a zero G flight. You hop on the airplane. The airplane does these crazy parabolic flights up and down. It means the steep ride down, the steep ride up, and depending upon the angle mm-hmm. of that ride down, you'll get either like one third G or one half G or quarter G or zero G. 
Mm-hmm. So you could simulate walking on the moon or walking on Mars or, or being in orbit. Fully in orbit, just, yep. just floating around. And you get that for about 30 seconds at a time. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you have this elephant squishing you in the, you know, down to the ground as you're going back <laughs> up. And then you can do it again and yeah. you're floating again. And, and this goes on and on and off for 20 so minutes or yeah, something. Yeah, so they'll like give you uh, up to 30, I think, parabolas at okay. a time. I mean, it's, it's a lot of effort. They do some training after you advance because it's called the Vomit Comet for a reason. Yeah. yeah. I remember watching the, um, the kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff whenever they were making Apollo 13 mm-hmm. and showing uh, Ron Howard and Tom Hanks and, and all that crew for making the film they were shooting the stuff that was supposed to be zero G for the film mm-hmm. and they were doing it on yeah. the, uh, the par- uh, parabolic flights. So yeah, yeah it's it really, really cool. cool. So the next slice up here in this triangle here is the suborbital flights. And this is like where Virgin Galactic comes in. Okay. Yeah. These we call joy rides. Mm-hmm. They're not going anywhere in particular. There's no particular goal. It's just to have fun. Yeah. Let's go up and come back down. And you get about 15 seconds or 15 minutes of zero gravity. It's like, ooh, yay, I'm playing. Well, and, and stuff like this, these joy rides as, a, as an attraction, mm-hmm. these could end up potentially being the, the highest volume of... Well, bear with me on this. Uh, if you have an, an, enough of the vehicles, let's say you've got 10 or 20 sets of vehicles, mm-hmm. so White Knight and uh, Spaceship Ones. Um, two. That, yeah. They're called Spaceship the Two. The successor is Spaceship Two. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's say you've got 20 sets of those, and once an hour, every day, they can send uh, a group of five people up. It won't be once an hour, probably once a day, really. Maybe twice a day, uh, depending. But they, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like that is scalable. That is something that could very easily turn into a an attraction into a product. That was that the people... vision of Virgin Galactic uh, back in two thousand and four. That they would be start doing that. Um, they haven't done it yet, but I won't explain. Get into that politics behind that one there. Well, anyways, yes, yeah. that is the vision of Virgin yeah. Galactic. You're absolutely right, and that was the vision of a few other groups trying to do suborbital flights. It's just a matter of money and business acumen and money <laughs> <laughs> well like i guess what i'm what i'm looking at is i'm thinking of if they're doing it like even once a day so let's say you have 300 flights a year mm-hmm. uh, that the the number of flights and let's say you've got five five people going on each flight mm-hmm. if you're doing this so 1500 uh, uh tickets a year yeah. then the price per ticket drops dramatically it could go down yes. yeah so you're looking at a few thousand dollars for this joyride yeah. uh just like taking the vomit comet yeah. um it's right now about two hundred thousand dollars yeah. per ticket or it's going to 25 it might be two two hundred fifty thousand. i think the last time i checked they raised the mm-hmm. prices on recently uh, but yeah they have they have hundreds of people in line for the virgin galactic flights yeah yeah and well i i guess me saying if you're doing 1500 flights a year then they could take that two hundred thousand two hundred fifty thousand and drop it down to ten thousand like if, if they, if they have the volume and and the enough um, interest in doing so, yep. I think like you could potentially have you know college kids who are like you know what hey I just graduated college and my let's say if they're the college kids that don't have all the debt they go you know what I want to I want to do this one thing that not a lot of other people have done and as a gift to myself I'm going to go up to the edge of space and I'm going to see the world for, like. Like see the the curve of this the world. is a bucket and, list flight. This, yeah, this is your yeah. like. I want to ch- not check this off my checklist. I did this. Yeah, and I, I think pe- like grown ass men in their forties and fifties would be more than willing to say, you know what? Instead of going skydiving, I'm going to go to the edge of space. It's going to cost me ten times as much, yeah, but I'm going to go and do it. Absolutely. So yeah. yeah.
Uh, and then, so back to your triangle, then the next thing is actually doing real space. Yeah, so that's so the, the, the real pinnacle, at the very top, yeah. the very smallest, narrowest group right now would be the folks who can really afford to go. And the, these are people that can afford millions of dollars yeah. to, to take Dennis a flight. Dennis Tito spent, I think, close to $10 million uh, for his flight to space. It's gone up to, like I think, 15 or $20 million now mm-hmm. um, to per person. And then you have to go through some real strenuous training. You're becoming an astronaut. Yeah. And you have to go through that level of training to get qualified. Mm-hmm. The Russians are the only ones that are going to help work on that with you uh, through a company called Space Adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, Things have been kind of quiet lately because it, it, you know, they're just because of the limited number of flights and the space shuttle has been retired. There's not enough. There's not a lot of space on on the uh, capsules available to yeah. uh, send just a, a random spare passenger yeah. up for a day. Well, the the capsules have what three seats? Um, right now, the or Russians the... have three, and the Americans have actually no. The Russians have three. That's it because everything's going through Russia because we right don't now. have any alternatives yet until Dragon gets One day. done, and One that's day. supposed to be sometime next year. Yeah. One day. Okay. So okay. Um, with 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 this, so we we eventually have people that are able to afford to go to space. And let's say we have a place for them to go, whether it's on a space cruise or to one of these orbital hotels. So. Once they get there, they have their list of different things uh, that they can be doing while they're in orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember from your talk uh, back in 2010 about uh, NASA has not – NASA has basically said no – under no circumstance has anyone who has ever gone to space had sex with anyone else who has gone to space Correct. while in orbit. Uh, whether or not that is accurate, because if it wasn't accurate, they're not going to tell you. Um, but let's say people who are tourists want to go and uh, to go and uh, knock boots in space. Both Zero Gravity Corporation and Space, uh, both Zero Gravity Corporation and Space Adventures have had people offer. Millions of dollars to them, and Virgin Galactic too, like a million dollars or so, to go do a flight just so they can film a porn, <laughs> film pornos in orbit, or in a zero-g flight, or a one-off, whatever. They've had to say no, uh, just because, you know, reputation and all that type of stuff. Um, but yes, the interest in sex and space is very strong. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but until things get going and they can start doing this on a regular basis, it's not going to happen officially. Mm-hmm. Um, there's rumors of a shuttle mission where they actually had an astronaut, a, a husband and wife team in 1992 fly. Jan Davis and Mark Lee flew together on a space shuttle flight. Um, but uh, there's just rumors that maybe they kind of did a little thing out there. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I think Space uh, Space Hab was actually in the module in the payload bay of the, of the space shuttle, so there was some privacy. Because mm-hmm. uh, I've actually been inside the space the, the space shuttle itself uh, in the Endeavor when it first came out. Um, it's small. Yeah, the orbiter is oh, tiny. It's tiny. Oh, my yeah. God. The, the, the cockpit is truly like an airplane cockpit. Mm-hmm. The mid-deck is not much better. Um, there ain't, there is no privacy at all on the shuttle unless you have like a space hat module or back then no. maybe you get a little bit more privacy but even then there's cameras everywhere and stuff yep. so not much well and and like we said even if something were to have happened NASA's not going to be like yeah yeah they, they totally got it on in space and it was it was crazy well, we have no, it on video no to the no. <laughs> yeah they're, no they're not going to do anything like that now the cosmonauts will be a little bit more open to conversation about this type of stuff but even they're saying no no one's had sex yeah. Uh, <clears throat> although yeah anyways there's, there's other things I could talk about but I won't get into that right now 
Well, so so um, in not just what what has maybe happened um, and rumor and and whatnot, but so in in the future. Okay, well, here you just brought up this slide. Why is NASA so skittish about sex? Do you want to? Well, talk about those things. Very simple, boys yeah. and girls. It's a government agency, mm. and the government agencies get funding from the taxpayer. Congress, yeah. and Congress gets their support from the taxpayer. Well, guess what? A good chunk of this country is rather skittish about things like sex. Oh my God, shocking! Yes, we live yeah. in the San Francisco Bay Area. We're very open. It's a little, about sex. little different out here, yeah. But in the Midwest, in other places, no, no. So why would a government agency? Uh, allow this type of activity to happen. There's this, this perception that astronauts are role models, and actually mm-hmm. they are. No, oh, yeah, they are totally. Heroes. They're, I mean, they're super well trained, super well qualified for what they do. I think it's like a million dollars a minute for every activity they do up on the space station mm-hmm. right now. It's like, you know, they, they're expected to do their job and be as professional as possible, mm-hmm. you know, and deal with whatever situations they're dealing with. And you're not going to talk about pornography in space. You're not going to talk about you know getting 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 some nookie going on up there. Um, it's not a thing you advertise. It's not a thing that promotes the or agency in any way, shape, or form. If anything, it will detract. Yeah. And NASA is always struggling for survival when it comes to funding. Yeah. So I did the math uh, a couple of years ago that NASA at the time was operating on a four billion dollar a year budget, which is nothing. Which is nothing. That is that is a rounding error. It, it's like on 1% the budget, two percent of the budget, and the the amount of profit, pure profit revenue, like like after all the things that Apple pulls in per quarter, Apple could have its own space agency. Why the fuck not? Yep. Like like I straight like. Let's let's get Johnny Ive to and some engineers to start designing what what a habitation module should look like and what what the experience of living in space should be. Let's start talking about uh, what 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 the 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 the, the, um, the habitation modules on the moon are so going to look like and how we're going to interact with them. Like uh, I don't know if you see saw the movie from I guess two thousand ten ish called Moon, um, which yeah, is fantastic very cool, very cool. and like. Like, let's go through and figure out what that environment's going to look like, and let's start moving in those directions. Yeah. So, well, I think Jeff Jeff Bezos has said on several interviews that, you know, I won the lottery. It's called Amazon. (laughs) That's why I'm building Blue Origin and doing the things that I do. So, yeah, absolutely. And I really would love to have someone, one of these guys, build prototypes, build mock ups of Mm -hmm. these habitats so we can figure out what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. So, so speaking of what works and what doesn't work, um, sitting next to me on this this desk that we're sitting at tonight uh, is one of your inventions. Since you guys are design fiends, a little piece of history for Oh, you. man. Um, before we get into that, I just want to show you a book by a guy named Raymond Lowy. This guy was basically the godfather of industrial design. He made the logos of just about every major corporation you've ever heard of. He designed cars, trains, boats, planes, all sorts of stuff. And in his later life, he was hired by NASA to be a consultant for designing Skylab and the first space stations because they had no clue how to design such a thing. Um, You probably saw the right stuff or read the book. Uh, I've heard of. Dear God, 
Uh, I know. I'm, if you like space, you must see this movie. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of space. I just haven't had the time to be as much of a nerd about it as you have. The right stuff. Uh, yeah. Get the movie. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure I've seen the movie. It sounds like something I, I watched. You've heard of the term a spam l- in the can, yes? Yes. Okay, that's where it came from. Yep, okay. okay. <laughs> so, so back in the day, NASA was trying to get guys into space, and all they could think of is like the rocket equation and the formulas to get them up there. They didn't really think about like how to get them there alive and back. And also, what's going to be inside this tin can that you're putting these people in? That you're, you you got needles and you got tubes and you got things sticking through their different orifices and extremely uncomfortable environment. And you have this can that doesn't have windows and it's like all these different controls and buttons and knobs. Uh, not very humane. Uh, one of the biggest things in that movie, which I recommend checking out, was the battle of getting a freaking window in the Mercury space capsule. A window. Hello. By the way, I'm, I'm flipping through this book, yes. and this is amazing. Yes, it is an amazing book. Um, and the whole slogan of, you know, was it No Bucks, No Buck Rogers? And the astronauts stood firm against the, the German, mostly German engineers, saying, we're going to get a window in this space vehicle. We are astronauts. We are pilots. We want to see where we are going. We're not just going to do by flyby controls. We're not going to have ground control in Houston control the vehicle. We need to have some aspect of control because anything can go wrong. You know, you know, pilots don't want someone to remotely control their own vehicle. They want to control their own destiny. And so that was a big battle of the first thing of trying to explain to people Brilliant. that you need to have freaking windows in your vehicle so that people can live because uh, it's hilarious. Engineers by themselves don't understand people. They don't know how to design for people. But when you work with artists, mm-hmm. like I do, mm-hmm. or work with designers, or work with folks who deal with the aesthetics, yep. whether it's fashion design, or uh, car design, or uh, other types of industrial, other types of design work, mm-hmm. even like you know, your iPhone, your iPad, they got the, you know, you have information design type stuff. You're trying to design where the things appear on the screen. You have to think of the human. Yep. And think about how they react to certain situations and how what is appealing to them. This just can't be just a piece of glass. There has to be something else going on mm-hmm. here. So you have to design this for the person actually touching it. Mm-hmm. And the engineers don't always get that. The engineers just want to get the thing to power on. Yeah. So when you're talking about rocket ships, and you're talking about space hab and stuff like that, and talking about big old aerospace... And talk about sex in space. Mm-hmm. We're talking about humanizing the experience. We're talking about designing around the people, not making the people work around, train the people around the design of mm-hmm. the vehicle. Yeah. So that's the difference between commercial design for space as opposed to government design for space. Yeah. So, and I brought up Raymond Lowy because he was the one that recommended windows on the space on, on Skylab because these guys are going to be in a tin can for months at a time they're going to go stir crazy and start going nuts and at, well at that point we all knew what the view outside that window would end up being and spectacular and well and and that's uh, if anything that is like the the life affirming event of being able to see the curve of the earth like seeing seeing the sunrise uh, sixteen the, times uh, a day. Concept called the overview effect. Uh, no. So a book to get, or I think there's actually a documentary now called the overview effect. 
Um, someone wrote a book a couple years ago. Uh, he interviewed like as many astronauts and scientists as he could mm-hmm. about their experiences being in space, mm-hmm. not from an engineering point of view, but from a human point of view. Yeah. Just what the experience was. And almost every single one of them have had some kind of spiritual, religious awakening mm-hmm. by looking out that window. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the point that I'm getting right, at exactly. is that 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 event of, of being able to do that changes that person. You have and, these hardcore engineers who are flying up there because a lot of these the pilots are engineers as well. Mm-hmm. You know, very focused on the thing. They look out the window and they realize, "Whoa, I'm really small." Yeah, and a lot of them became environmentalists became uh, much more aware of their surroundings, mm-hmm. became poets, artists, things like that. So a lot of these hardcore engineers suddenly saw a different aspect of their lives they'd never seen before. Yeah. I think, what was it, um, one of the, well, the, the most, the last Apollo astronaut to, to step foot on the moon uh, who re- recently passed away. Yes, yeah, it was Rusty. Um, yeah. He, like, he, he's famously quoted with saying that, like, like, whenever you saw the Earth from the moon, what is it that you would like to say, you know, about that uh, experience? And his response was that he would take every politician in Washington and drag their asses out there and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Look at that right there. Mm-hmm. And because it changes mm-hmm. your perspective and it, it makes you have a much more global perspective yeah. to understand that it, it that the borders are just lines drawn on a map. Adults have blinders. So, we, we, we live a certain way, we do a certain thing, we fall into habits, we're creatures of habit, and we have the blinders on. I mean, the whole political situation that's going on mm-hmm. is a case of extreme blinders Oh yeah, put on everybody's faces, and they can't see beyond what's in front of their faces, and we have all these issues and conflicts and problems. <laughs> the the, the uh, podcasts I've been recording with my brother are, tend to be much more political than anything, so we, we definitely have been yeah, talking about it's that. It's like, you know, there is a third way for all these things. But anyways, getting into space, this gives you that opportunity to meet that third way. So space tourism is exciting and intriguing because you're going beyond your your comfort level. Mm-hmm. You're going beyond anything you've ever experienced your entire life. And you get to tell people this was freaking amazing. Here yeah. I am floating over the planet Earth, mm-hmm. seeing entire continents. I can see cloud formations and storms and volcanoes going off and lightning Oh my God, the lightning at night. There's some mm-hmm. awesome videos on YouTube looking at the ISS at night mm-hmm. where you get to see the space station. I mean, the Earth rolling, rotating below it. Yeah. So you have Aurora Borealis. I mean, you're above the Aurora and you're watching the lightning storms and the multicolor uh, things, effects going on in the atmosphere. You become humbled by what you see out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, that is why we need to have an off world presence to remind us of you know our issues today are pretty pitiful yeah you know you know we have to think beyond ourselves and getting off world will make us do that yeah but, well so i i know we need to wrap up right now because we're hitting the hour and a half mark we never but got to answer I, I, about I, sex and space did we uh, <laughs> well what i wanted to talk about um real quick and we can we can do, spend like maybe ten I, minutes I can on help this. You wrap it up. Okay. Um, well, I wanted to talk about the Snuggle Tunnel. Oh, this this invention. Well, this is this is kind of uh, one of the one of the the shiny objects about your your talk. And by the way, and um, 
I don't remember. Did you, do you have a version of this talk that you have put together that's on like YouTube or anything like that? Um, so there was there's a TV show that was called The, the Universe. It was a uh, it was out a couple of years ago, I think in like 2012 2013, um, that talked about all sorts of space topics. And there is an episode in The Universe TV show called Sex in Space. And in there, you'll see me and a bunch of my associates who are talking about that subject on many different levels. Okay. Just like this conversation has been on many different levels, except the actual doing of the dude. <laughs> <laughs> this, okay. this, yeah. this, 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 it's actually a pretty good video. Okay. It covers a lot of these different aspects of it. And I do show the snuggle tunnel, and mine is just like a, at the very end. But just getting people to think out of the box when it comes to living, mm-hmm. working, and playing in space. And what are you going to do up there? What's, what are the activities? What kind of hobbies? What kind of sports? Mm-hmm. What kind of things are you going to do? Is there, I mean, you're going to reinvent basketball in space, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can create an arena where you bounce the ball off of these, like, this, this, this spherical structure. Well, it, it's like the, it's like the, like, uh, 2010 Tron Legacy, um, Disc Wars, yeah, but in zero G. You're gonna have to get your your, your trigonometry yeah. and your vectors figured out because uh-huh. if you hit the ball this way, where is it really gonna go? Mm-hmm. And if you're gonna play this game to get the ball from one end of the of the, the tube to the other, you have to figure out well when you bounce the ball this way, it's gonna go this way or this way or that way, and all of a sudden you have a whole new sport. Oh yeah, yeah. That sounds that sounds like that would be fantastic. Yeah, exactly. It'd be a lot of fun to watch. So these concepts, you know, there, there's so many things you can do. I mean. Uh, the vacation in space requires people to invent new hobbies, new sports, new fun things to do. Sex, of course, will always happen. It's just, it's just, you know, we're human. You know, we've got body parts that want to do things, and we have hormones go going crazy. Hell yeah! Uh, the snuggle tunnel. Going to the snuggle tunnel now. The snuggle tunnel was an invention based on the idea of having a honeymoon suite in on a cruise ship in space. Let's say, you know, oh God, you're a rich guy and you have. Or, uh, you know, you, you, you pay for a honeymoon with your, your, your new new wife and you want to go on a, the most fanciest cr- trip ever. I mean, you know, some people go on cruises, some people cruise in space. Mm-hmm. And so the Snuggle Tunnel will be part of that hotel suite where you have this intimate space. This tunnel is basically, it's a tube that expands and contracts attached to the portal wall of well, the wall of the, uh, the uh, space, uh, the suite that mm-hmm. you're in, the room that yeah. you're in. And I actually did some prototype designs of how the entire suite would look. Uh, but the Snuggle Tunnel is basically the place where you, you do the do. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you, start, you get down and get funky. And it, it is of, it's designed to be just big enough for two people and a little bit more space to do what you want to do. Um, so, well, I mean, like, I'm just thinking of uh, ergonomics on this. Uh, from your demo that you have right here, mm-hmm. you're probably looking at three to four feet diameter by probably six feet long, seven feet long, something like that. Yeah, there's some, there's yeah. some cool... Um, and it, like, accordions out it's from the wall. accordions out. It looks like one of those, like, uh, uh, kids' play tubes that you see, like, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, you put out in the backyard and you play around and you crawl like, inside. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's like, a, uh, it's like a wire spiral, spiral sort of thing, of thing. Yeah, and exactly. to to uh, collapse it, mm-hmm. you maybe you have a motor built into the wall that that retracts the spiral back in or something. Or like just that. sorry, this is just me just like trying out. to figure out There's things that mechanics. Things. I mean, yeah. you can play with this, and the idea is to have just enough room to do what you want to do, uh, but not too far. Yep. Because I talk about Newton's third <laughs> law of motion. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, or the forces of the two bodies in each other are always equal and directed in the opposite directions. So you're going to bounce around a lot. You're going to bounce around a lot. So, so if you don't have this, 
you need some kind of restriction to keep you from flying all over the place in zero gravity. You, you'll have no control. You'll bounce off of one wall or the other. Well, what's to say you couldn't just have, like, handles in strategic and locations? There, and there's other ways. So, <laughs> so there's this famous internet hoax. You can look it up on Snopes.com. This came out in the 1990s. It was supposedly there were some sex experiments at the Johnson Space Center in their neutral buoyancy tank. Okay. Where they're actually trying to experiment with bondage equipment, straps, and handlebars, okay. and handcuffs, and all sorts of things to kind of keep people to stay in one place while they're, you know, having a lot of fun. Okay. Um, of course, San Franciscans would love it, but the other, some other folks would be a little bit... Put off by it. Put off yeah. by the idea of being taped down and, you know... Stuff happening. Yeah, yeah I mean, like I, I guess what. So with within, I, I understand the the ergonomics of the the snuggle tunnel. Uh-huh. Um, the the thing that that concerns me is just trying to think of a cylinder or being inside of a cylinder, mm-hmm. and like if you're trying to sandwich together with someone and uh, wrap yourself around the other person in one way or another. And you're floating. Um, and you're floating. Yeah. Like, the the act of intercourse tends to be uh, forced from one object to another. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's, it's just, like, repetitive motion. And unless you have some sort of, uh, like... Like in, unless you're like mounted to something, uh, for lack of a better term, mounted mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. like a wall or something like mm-hmm. that, unless you're locked somewhere, the unstoppable force versus yeah. the immovable. Yeah, object. so yeah. so like I guess I guess it's like it's like taking um, a one of these uh, like inflatable spheres or that happens to have a weight attached to the inside on one side, and you throw it up in the air, mm-hmm. and the sphere doesn't just you know, spin like a sphere does, it spins, uh, like the, the center of, yeah, asymmetrically. Yeah. So you effectively have an asymmetric sort of uh, like movement inside of this, this cylinder. So that, that's why I ask, why not have also have some sort of like handholds, like for, for both partners so they can kind of move against each right. other. Well, there's, there's handles yeah. on the, on the outer edges okay. to grip onto. Um, and one of the ideas was to have at the mounting points on the inside have handles as well. Okay. So, or, or actually footholds. Yeah. One of the big things I noticed, like, like for example, on the space station, uh, ISS, they don't have chairs. No, they don't. Chairs are useless. But they have footholds. And the footholds also double as handholds. So they can actually, like, stick, grab their feet on a certain thing, and they actually have some uh, uh, stability with yeah. their movement. It's kind of like, I'm going to put my feet right here and trick my brain into maybe thinking that I'm standing. Right. Standing so you, here. you can have one or two feet. Attached to footholds at the at the base of the snuggle tunnel, so you can you know do your mm-hmm. thing, um, or try to do free floating if you want to. There's there all sorts of yeah, variations. I mean, I'm I'm sure we are we are <clears throat> uh, ingenious, an ingenious species. We'll figure out new methods of doing all of the things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know one one thing about the snuggle tunnel that you had said previously is one one great like like an actual mechanical reason to have. Uh, this lovemaking happening within this uh, cylinder is because uh, there is fluid transfer and there there's DNA in messes flying everywhere. And so this kind of 
contains that to a certain degree and you know you don't have um you don't have semen or some other sort of bodily fluid floating around getting into that stuff exactly exactly so so fluid management is always a big issue you have blobs everywhere that's why i've developed uh, amongst all the things is is robots that are basically uh, robot maids Mm -hmm. or vacuum cleaners that periodically go through the hotel rooms and they clean them well you, you know what you could do is so the the suite if you make most of the surfaces, like smooth as glass. Bear with me on this. Uh, let's say you have the entire suite is a cylinder. cylinder. On one side, it's attached to a hallway, and on the other side, there's a, a portal to look out and see the, the moon rise mm-hmm. or the, uh, the earth rise, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. So, and around the entire in- interior surface of this curved surface of the cylinder, make it as smooth as possible, and then have robots that attach through suction or magnetically or whatever and almost like a Roomba that just goes through and it's it. almost like washing the windows. You got it. Um, and if, if, if like you, you can have compartments all over the place, but you, the, the tolerances of the, the like doors and cabinets and things like that would need to be, you know, one thirty seconds of an inch. So it's so thin and it also like gasketed on the backside. So that air, it's like airtight. So have to do air and anyways, anyways, just yep. to make sure things are airtight and safe. Mm-hmm. Um, Designing for a space cruise ship is, is quite a bit different than designing for like ISS. With ISS, they got wires and cables and stuff mm-hmm. all over the place, and it's easy to make a mess. It's yeah. easy just for an adult to break a thing or yeah. bump into something. For if you do if you re, do research on super yachts and mega yachts, mm-hmm. they are pristine. They are oh, yeah. gorgeous, and, and and they're basically works of art on the water, and they have everything perfectly lined up the way they should be and sealed and they have cushions and they've got glass and it's just oh it's stunning stunning with with the the sort of uh industrial design that we've seen in you know science fiction films over the last 20 years uh, i think we're starting to see more and more of that like the the gleaming pure smooth glass or like gleaming glistening glass surfaces all over everything uh Alexis and I just recently watched the latest Star Trek film and like uh, Star Trek Beyond like mm-hmm. last weekend, which was a good, a good fun movie to watch. Had some really funny parts in it and uh, had good little action things here and there. So overall, I would probably say four out of five stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, th- through that vision of the future, mm-hmm. uh, it is everything is these uh, these glistening pure white plastic mm-hmm. like gloss white plastic surfaces or glass surfaces and things like that like all of the the products that we saw apple putting out 10 years ago like with ipods being this black gloss or white gloss and mm-hmm. stuff like that and it, I, stuff is beautiful mm-hmm. and and that's that is an aesthetic that's probably going to turn into being timeless and we're going to see more of that uh, as we get into becoming a spacefaring species especially with things like tourism like with uh with things that are more commercial or more um, industrial, then it's going to end up being like that. This is the octopus, which is one of Paul Allen's mega yachts. Oh wow! And he has a couple of smaller yachts attached to it right there. Yeah, it's just—it's like it's on a little. Imagine, imagine something that's like the size of a Russian icebreaker with a smaller yacht that parks inside of it. <laughs> so this is and a helicopter pad, and yeah, it's ridiculous. Helicopter pad and everything—it's just—it's just nuts. So yeah, what you're, what you're talking about is absolutely right. Having beautiful design aesthetic, uh, comfortable, warm, um, 
and then having like you know either you have servants or probably robots doing the actual cleaning of the messes and stuff like that because people yeah. are messy yeah having and i got these robots i designed these these flying robots that'd be like vacuum cleaner type of devices mm-hmm. that uh today they're called drones <laughs> <laughs> they, but in 2005 that didn't that term didn't yeah. exist uh, but yeah something some type of drone like device that would fly from room to room with a ducted fan jet system and just mm-hmm. fly from place to place, and then they would land on the surface and clean it and all that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's you know just part of the larger. There's this whole infrastructure that you have to design for, and yeah, the, the snuggle tunnel was just one tiny fun aspect of it. But then again, when you're not having sex, where do you sleep? How do you what kind of a couch? What kind of bed do you make? And how does it work? And how do you not float away and bump your head on something? Yeah. Um, and well, and those types of problems they've been working on on space stations for the last 30 years. And I can get into the whole story about how they they just, you know, it depends on how much budget they have. Mm -hmm. They'll think about going further with designing creature comforts for space. Just as a side note, because, you know, this is what I do, um, just two years ago, uh, an Italian company called Lavazza teamed up with an engineering firm to create and build and fly up the first zero-gravity espresso machine. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's now an espresso machine called the ISS Espresso in, on the space station right now. It's one of those examples of creature comforts. Yeah. I want a freaking espresso or a coffee done right, and you can't do it with just the crappy things they have up there. Mm-hmm. They still have hot plates. They do most of their cooking on hot plates up there. Mm-hmm. It's really crappy. So they have this espresso machine that actually does a wonderful job having really good smelling coffee. That's not a problem. They couldn't smell their coffee because it's in a freaking plastic bag with a sippy straw. Mm-hmm. Well, and also um, because of how steam rises in space. Like if you like if you had steam a warm is beverage, a sphere. exactly. It so it, it, it's 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 going to it's going to uh, emanate from whatever that beverage is in a different way than it right. would here. So on Earth. one of my other projects, which was a zero gravity cocktail glass mm-hmm. project, I do remember this about fluid flow and fluid mechanics mm-hmm. dealing with. Uh, Getting liquids can under control, so they go into a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Using, uh, in, in that case, you were using um, surface tension. Surface tension systems yeah. here. Uh, just recently, uh, another associate of mine who actually is far, far more qualified than I, who actually just is now selling zero-gravity coffee cups. Okay. A ceramic version of it. And uh, um, I, should, I should go by that before I forget. Um, that was actually 3D printed and tested in his drop tower about 100 times. And it's actually, and he's actually flown several objects. He's he's like one of the world's experts on fluid dynamics. He's at the University of uh, was it University of Portland? Yep. Yeah, University of Portland. Um, he's a physics professor there. Who he can show you the mathematics of how fluid flows in a weightless environment. It's scary as hell. He's awesome, <laughs> Professor Mark Weislogel. Um, but he knows his stuff, and so he, with the help of an astronaut, designed the first coffee cup in space. Mm-hmm. So that they can enjoy the smell, the aroma mm-hmm. of that coffee or that espresso. Mm-hmm. So we were inspired by his stuff to create this uh, cocktail glass project. Unfortunately, our, co- our project kind of ran out of funding and other stuff happened. So we had to put that on the back burner. But uh, he continued with his coffee cup project and was able to actually get it flying. And, uh, you, you know, this is very unusual, very aerodynamic shape. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look up zero gravity coffee cup if you want and learn more about how that mm-hmm. stuff works. Well, what I'll actually do this with this episode of the podcast that I usually don't do with them is I'll go through all the different stuff we're talking about and yeah. actually put it in like notes and say here's the links to all of this stuff so mm-hmm. people can can check it out and see photos of the stuff. Yeah, because yeah, this stuff is amazing. Ton, there's tons of good stuff out there. So, 
Well, all right. So it is it is late, and uh, we're yeah. a little over time. Uh, so, Sam, thank you for having me in your home and talking sir. to me about this stuff. Um, I was also thinking about uh, we should try to do this again at some point because I definitely want to try to talk to you about uh, stuff like Burning Man and the different projects that you guys do whenever you guys Burning go out there. Because there's a bunch of really, really cool I, I stuff. I wear many hats, yeah. sir, so, yeah. you know. I, sir, I you are one of the stuff. more interesting people that I know. And there's there's definitely some really cool stuff that I, I love talking to you about and, sure. and finding out about and learning about. Well, now you know where I live. Yeah. Your, and so this is the first time that Alexis and I had a chance to check out your new home that you moved into, what, nine months ago? Yeah, it was August of last year. Okay, so a little over six months ago then. Yeah. yeah. Um, the house is beautiful, and your son is beautiful as well. So congratulations on that. 1910 Victorian uh, yeah. home and a eight-week-old baby. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. good. Thank you again, sir. And, um, yeah, I'll... I'll let you know whenever this is up, and if you have any feedback, then I would love to hear it. You are very welcome, sir. Thank you. Glad to be of service.